Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. It is another chapter in our volume cycle of self-aware horror. Uh, and I do believe I chose this movie uh, mm. knowing that I had never seen it before. Uh, so we're going to be doing Dead Alive, a.k.a. Brain Dead uh, in the rest of the world. I think it's just Dead Alive in the United States. Um, which is a movie that uh, I've always wanted to see but never got around to it. And joining us is a very special guest. Chris, do you want to introduce Brian for us? Yeah. Uh, Brian Eggert from Deep Focus Review is here. I've been reading Brian's stuff for quite a while. I've, in fact, uh, used excerpts from some of his um, deep dives and reviews uh, from my own high school film studies class that I teach. So I'm super excited to welcome you. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining us on Film Trace. Yeah, thanks for for having me. I I really appreciate the the invite, and I'm you know honored that you you teach my stuff in your class. Um, I actually you know I kind of write my stuff for young film students. Some of those definitives essays that I write um, on nice. deepfocusreview.com, and um, I'm always interested to learn that I'm highly plagiarized. Like, <laughs> um, so you know, if you see somebody and it doesn't sound like their voice in their paper, you know, you might want to do a, a plagiarism check. Um, I've been told by by some instructors that I get plagiarized a lot, which is kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I, I've been writing for probably uh, 15 years. Uh, 15 years this year, actually, uh, almost to the month. Nice. Um, on Deep Focus Review and kind of balance things between, you know, new release reviews and then kind of go into more academic writing for uh, this line of definitives essays, which are, you know, I, I don't have any illusions about it. I'm, you know, I was inspired by Roger Ebert's great movie section and kind of the essentials on TCM and have just taken a more of an academic bent on those. And, um, and then I have a Patreon that I do. And, um, but yeah, I, I kind of feel like, even though I've been doing this for 15 years, I sort of uh, just kind of made it a little bit this year. With yeah. uh, I was I was uh, inducted into Rotten Tomatoes, which is you I know, was going to ask you about this. That's amazing. You're our first Rotten Tomatoes approved critic on here. Oh, really? Um, you're you're a celebrity. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to put too much stock in it or anything, but I, I after you know writing that much. Uh, for so long and it does feel kind of like you know it takes care of some imposter syndrome stuff that i've yeah <laughs> you know that everybody kind of think who talks about movies online deals with of course so, um, <laughs> no, absolutely yeah so yeah it's it's uh i'm i'm happy to be here though great yeah, um we, we appreciate it i think that uh um, this will be a, a particularly interesting one to get your viewpoint on, because like you said, some of your definitive stuff, I, it, it makes a lot of sense that you say, you know, you're influenced by uh, Roger Ebert's great movies. Um, and this is kind of Dead Alive slash Brain Dead, one of those great movies, but not in the traditional sense, right? Right. I'm curious, uh, since Dan, you already said that this is your your first watch of brain dead um what's your personal history with it brian so i kind of you know not to not to go in in the second movie that we're talking about but i i came into sort of splatter or or you know melt movies that sort of cult movie uh horror aesthetic uh in the early 90s um largely through army of darkness and evil dead so mm -hmm. one of the first 
you know, I would stay up late at night when I was, you know, probably like 10 and watch, watch uh, like USA up all night. And, and I think I caught Army of Darkness on there. And I got so interested in Army of Darkness and Bruce Campbell and sort of like the whole Briscoe County Jr. aspect oh, of it all yeah, that uh, I started looking up what else he was in. And then I found Evil Dead 2. And I'm like, okay, this is sort of, you know, this is fun when you're a, when you're a 10 or 12 year old kid. And then I, you know, randomly just bought Evil Dead 2 on VHS and wanted to learn more and uh, gradually just, you know, started finding more of these movies. And, um, yeah, came to came to Dead Alive, you know, before I saw, I think, Heavenly Creatures or any other Peter Jackson movies. And um, it, I think I, I didn't quite get the self-awareness at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did sort of see a relationship between Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson. Um and I came to understand later that, you know, Peter Jackson was very, very much influenced by him. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, enjoyed it very much on a very base level when I was, uh, when I was an early teen or pre-adolescent and have really come to still appreciate that on, on various intellectual levels, actually, which is, is, seems kind of hard to do actually when you're watching the movie and, you know, blood's everywhere. How is this, you know, intellectually satisfying? And I think it's more just the cult aspect of, of movie viewership that interests me now. Um, I studied kind of cult, cult aesthetics and cult uh, consumption in uh, when I was getting my master's degree and, and just sort of appreciate it now on that level. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at with it. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of splitting the difference between the two of you. I, you know, saw the Evil Dead movies with my older brother as a teen, but I, I just knew Dead Alive as that one movie with that iconic VHS cover at yeah. Blockbuster. And I had always, like, seen it, but, like, there was never any, like, quite enough push when I was that young to, to, to actually grab it. And it wasn't until Frighteners came out in 96 uh, when all of a sudden that was probably my first, you know, exposure to Peter Jackson. And um, I I almost didn't know a lot uh, better necessarily because I know that's not like seen as typically a high point of the man's career (laughs) uh, retro retro in retrospect. But uh, that hooked me um, specifically like that was one of the first early instances i think as a teenager where i'm like wow this what he's doing with the camera is fascinating and so then uh i think it was in college um that's when uh netflix dvds one at a time by mail uh, became prevalent for for dan and i anyways uh and that that was one of the first ones where i was just like i've got to finally see this movie and so I, I have a really distinct memory because like my randomly assigned roommate was like a frat bro kind of guy. And I actually had the two at a time Netflix subscription. And so I, I got dead alive and bicycle thieves in the mail at the same time. <laughs> what a mixture. <laughs> and so I'm so, and I watched both of them the same night and that was like, it was like early on sophomore year of college and that immediately then my roommate was just like this dude's a fucking weirdo like what is he watching yeah so i mean bicycle thieves maybe but that a lot oh my i mean <laughs> dear lord just like, I had... the two of those back to back it's like what a double feature i'll tell you um, i was not ready for this movie yes i was tell not me ready about at all. that dan uh you know and i'm not like you know 
I'm not the biggest guy into gore. It's not one of my favorite aspects of the horror genre, but I'll, you know, I'll do it. Like I like the Romeo Strap and Tom Savini and his work. Um, but this was just like the thing that blew me away about watching this for the first time is how tight the movie is and how mm-hmm. quick it is, how much ground it covers plot wise in like the first 40 minutes. It's kind of insane. Uh, it's just extremely filled to the brim with um plot and unbelievable gore and just like uh pitch black satire it it kind of blew me away uh, how good it is um mm-hmm. i was just not expecting that because like i came to peter jackson through the frighteners and i liked that movie growing up and i've just an odd film but like um nothing indicated and you look at his lord of the Rings stuff do you think there's any indication so of where he came from here like <laughs> oh, yeah. what I mean, like, or bad taste even before this, which I think is his first film, right? Um, how do you do? You guys see a connection or bridge between this stuff and the 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 huge blockbuster, biggest films ever that he made, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit stuff? Do you guys find a connection there? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, the way he's moving the camera in the Lord of the Rings. I actually just rewatched the Lord of the Rings movies a couple of weeks ago, and uh, yeah. and the Hobbit movies, and. Oof. The way he's moving the camera in those movies and getting right up into the like the orcs' faces yes. is very similar yeah. to what he's doing in in this movie. You know, getting up in zombies' faces as they're screaming and whatnot. I mean, those are the they're the same angles. Yeah. Um, and actually, rewatching the Hobbit movies, I never noticed in the last one, um, the Battle of the Five Armies. There's a orc named Bolg that is uh, like the second in command orc, and it's the same head of henrietta in evil no. dead 2 um <laughs> if, you, if you look it's very similar it's like strikingly similar um so i think he's you know constantly injecting these sort of zombie zombie movie aesthetics into into the lord of the rings yeah. it's just you know sort of high fantasy blended with that and um they may be considered impersonal i think to some of his fans of his earlier horror movies but i i see the see the connection very closely the, the one thing that stood out to me and seen dead a lot is the is the close-ups and the medium yeah. close-ups yeah it's constant and why do you think let's get into um, the technical side of things why do you think that he i mean literally i noticed this within the first 20 minutes uh and then i couldn't unsee it for the rest of the movie and he he pulls the camera out later on as we get to the party as we get to the lawnmower scene stuff like that but why do we think he's so close up? And it's almost like a grotesque angle he's constantly going for. It's, um, it, it's really jarring in the first. Yeah. Yes. I, I watched Evil Dead 2 uh, in preparation for this. And then I rewatched uh, Dead Alive. And I mean, Evil Dead 2 is like a 10. Like at a level 10 for in terms of intensity. And this yeah. just blows it off the scale. I mean, absolutely. It does. Yeah. I, tried, yeah. I watched it right afterwards. I was like, well, this is kind of boring. Like this, is, you know, <laughs> right? right. Uh, which is not something you should be saying about Evil Dead too, because it's exactly. it's an insane movie. But um, yeah, he really leans into this kind of off off kilter and and yep. uh, you know just the whole off kilterness of it all is actually something that's really associated with New Zealand cinema. I've learned. Mm, um, interesting. There's this documentary called, uh, actually made by Sam Neill, called uh, Cinema of Unease from 1995 yeah. and he just makes all these links between New Zealand as a culture and this whole off kilter perspective, like specifically these dark kind of gross out and bad taste films. And yeah. so 
all these filmmakers are making these connections um, between New Zealand culture and just being sort of off. And I feel like he really embraces that obviously in, in this movie, but you're also seeing that in things like, you know, Jane Campion, sweetie, or um, like the 2006 movie, black sheep. Have you ever saw that? It's a New Zealand horror right. movie about yeah. zombified sheep. It's just this, the, the world is very off kilter in in New Zealand cinema for some reason. And I don't know that it's, I don't know that I buy into the 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 argument that all of New Zealand cinema is like that because you yeah. just see exceptions everywhere. But there is something unique in specifically Peter Jackson cinema where everything seems off, um, and it's a world unto itself. Uh, and and so yeah, I think you know from the first shots of just that kind of that rocky skull island where they're at in the first scenes, yeah. the, the camera angles are just wild. Do yeah. we think, I, I wonder if, well, Chris, go ahead. What are you going to say? Oh, I was going to just add the, even with like the relationship dynamics, the character development here, like you mentioned a little bit earlier, Dan, like that briskness to it. Uh, it's those, even those moments are like super intense before there's even a drop of blood on screen. Like you still, you have those really uh, kind of visceral close-ups in the, you know, bridging romance between the two leads yeah. and that, I mean, I feel like I could have just watched that. And you, you end up seeing that aspect a little more with, like, Heavenly Creatures. Yeah. Um, and so, and going back to your, what you said, Brian, about the connections with Lord of the Rings, like, that's what still makes a lot of those uh, moments work, even if you're not dealing with, like, the fantastical elements of Tolkien's world building. There's still that, like, there's a reason why <laughs> this guy has, you know, basically mastered epic in scope fantasy cinema um it, it feels like on the surface they're two worlds apart but you have such a kind of clear-headedness about it like there's this confidence yeah. about it that feels yeah. just like i mean I, I i can't imagine like what i can't think of an american filmmaker or a british filmmaker that comes out the gate like that and so maybe maybe there is something to that, you know, geographical historical argument. But um, it, it feels it feels so refreshing when, at least for me, like the vast majority of the films I'm watching are American, and you know, uh, not ever really trying to 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 be that in your face. Right. There's one quote from uh, Jackson back when um, the film originally came out in New Zealand, and. Uh, I mean, we we will get into this, I'm sure, with the balance between humor and horror, as tend there tends to be in these kind of self-aware horror films, and like you mentioned earlier, Brian, the splatter genre in general, which really uh, is kind of under the surface of mainstream horror, at least in America, mm -hmm. during during the 80s and 90s. Um, and he spoke about how uh, one of his idols was actually Buster Keaton, and this is kind of one of the the key elements i think of you know bester keaton's longevity as a filmmaker and as an actor and as a performer is that is that in your faceness like there you can watch sherlock jr or the general a hundred years later and it still feels like exhilarating and i really think like it's just exciting to think about how like uh dead alive can keep getting um rediscovered over the years and there's like no there's no waning value, even no, yeah. you know, with, considering like the antiquated, you know, stop motion animation and prosthetics. It's still just like hilariously fun 
and it, it, it's it's timeless. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a certain um, I don't know. I, I I saw that quote about Buster Keaton, and I not that I you know his influences are in his influences, but I felt like it was more like Jerry Lewis and Lo- Looney Tunes watching it. Sure, so, yeah, you know he's his the physical comedy that he's doing is just a bungling Lionel. Uh, he, he's just bungling and falling over <laughs> himself and running yeah. into things and um, you know trying to get a piece of licorice i think and, and knocking over things oh and, and it's just and he's so awkward and the camera angles are just exaggerating everything so i i didn't see the buster keaton connection and i i felt it was broader than that sure yeah yeah i can see that i think the the element that still feels true to me is like the the wizardry aspect of it where it's just like like buster keaton was basically like a, a magician on film right sure and and that kind of like brazenness you know he you know, literally like broke his bones uh on on sets to um get the kind of shot he wanted and um that that just like that risking it all kind of feeling but i think you're totally right like the the cartoonishness right it's like literally feels like you're you're painting with blood on screen right. like uh you would you would paint for a for a tex avery cartoon or something i what did you think dan when like in terms of like looking at the history of horror um, what it, I'm curious, especially watching it in 2022 for the first time, what did you like? Be, yeah, it felt so one of a kind, I'm sure. But is there any like connectiveness there you, well, that you noticed? I, I mean, uh, I think for me, you know, the and there's a great quote in here about how Jackson did not want to make a serious horror film. And then obviously, it's so obvious the intention here is a comedy. I mean, is it really, it's a horror film in the sense that it's gory, uh, but it leads with comedy through and through. Mm-hmm. And trying to think about like other similar movies, obviously the Evil Dead stuff, Reanimator would be another precursor, uh, Return of the Living Dead. It kind of fits all in that world, but this one feels a little bit different than those. You know, like he, the the parody element here is more focused on society at large, and it's not sort of self-reflexive on the horror genre, like Return of the Living Dead would be a good example. Um there's something, I don't know, This it feels a little bit like an outlander to me in terms of um, the history of, of horror a bit. I don't know, Brian, what do you think? You probably have a better sort of scope here and where this would fit in. Well, I think I, I don't see as many direct references as as other films, as other horror mm. movies are making uh, throughout the 80s. But I do see the kind of one-upmanship of mm-hmm. of effects that's going yeah. on throughout the 80s where you know joe dante sees a horror movie and decides he can do better and i can do grosser if i you know apply a certain amount of you know a better werewolf transition or i can do yeah. a grosser zombie effect or you know tom savini doing you know trying to outdo dawn of the dead with <laughs> day of the dead and so i see like him looking at the evil dead's movies or the reanimator or or society and saying well yeah. i can I, I can do grosser um and so you have this conversation happening from one film filmmaker to the next that at least in this movie yeah there's not a lot of direct references but i think it's part of that conversation um and then i guess from another horror aspect i i was trying to think of a a horror movie in the 90s that that continues that conversation after this. And I didn't mm. really see that. I couldn't really find an example that mm. came up until maybe like slither. And by then you're using special effects shots. I think like, yeah. you know, 92, 
Death Becomes Her comes out, and it's it's CGI now. We're, we're we can do all this stuff with CGI, so why spend months building these prosthetics and whatnot when we can just CGI it? Yeah, and, which is crazy when you look at it because the budget here is only three million dollars. Yeah, right. It looks unbelievable for that yeah. amount of money. Yeah, like the uh, I don't even know what the the time to shoot this was, but it had to be it, not an easy 11, shoot. I think I read that it was eleven weeks. Okay, guess yeah. that's not that bad actually. I mean, that's yeah. not terrible. Um, yeah, I mean that's the thing too. Like looking back on it now, it uh, it's considered the like goriest film ever made that's what people say yeah. they say the most blood ever used on screen before um that's i mean that's its claim to fame but looking closer at the movie and actually seeing it now from its infamous status there's so much more going on here than gore right yeah i mean there's multiple layers of satire uh that's going i didn't i didn't even realize it was a period piece looking back right, yeah it. Because I was like looking at this, I was like, "Oh, is this the way New Zealand is back in the the nineties, the late eighties? But no, it's it's in the nineteen fifties. I mean, it's very pointed, I would say, in terms of what it's trying to critique in New Zealand society, uh, which can be replicated in you know America, Australia, or, or England. Um, and it, it just that's the thing. What is interesting to me, and comparing it to Evil Dead, and uh, this is kind of my take on it. But Evil Dead 2 is great, fun, interesting, a mile a minute type movie. I did not feel like there is a, a huge satirical societal criticism undercurrent to it. I didn't really feel it or see it. With this movie, that is the undercurrent of the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And like all of the gore and the great set pieces are, are wonderful sort of uh leaves but the core the the core and roots of the film is that satire that is going on and it's not just the satire of that society but also this interesting little story about an over um overpowering parent and sort of that whole um, can we say freudian is that sort of what that what's going on there um yeah i don't know what do you got what's your take on that sort of juxtaposition that's happening here i feel like there's like two layers in particular at the end. I definitely, I don't even know if I saw either layer when I originally watched it <laughs> as a sophomore in college. Cause it, I think especially that first kind of uh, surface level is just the, the sheer, you know, looniness of it all. So then like, once you break it down, and I think like kind of what I was saying earlier, the relationship aspects and character development beats still very much work, even though, you know, Peter Jackson is out, you know, completely honest and says like he kind of just shoehorned those in there because he knew that that's what it took to like make the story of a film and the propulsion of a narrative work um for it but yes it's very much soaked in that kind of um really freudian uh but there's also like that xenophobic aspect of paquita's character Mm -hmm. and um uh the the patriarchal uh, misogynist uh, aspect of the uncle character. I forget what the relationship is there, but he also becomes the character that even though there's not any direct like titles referenced, he is the one that kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit by mentioning like uh, when the zombies are attacking the kitchen, um, he says like, I've read the comics. I know what we need to do. Like, and that kind of goes back to your point, Brian, about the cartoon aspect to it and the almost like pulp it's it's essentially like this this pulp reference point so that you have the uh, the meta kind of postmodern aspect to it 
but then completely this uh, uh, callback call to um, almost uh, like psycho Hitchcock kind of character dynamics. And so there's like enough going on on both of those levels that at any given moment, and there's also like a religious aspect with the priest character, which is iconic, right? Yeah. Um, that there's just like, so it's so, but it, the best thing is like, we kind of talked about this with regards to the new Scream, that movie feels completely overstuffed, but how is Jackson able to really like pack so much in here, but never, but still make it feel breezy. Like it's, it, it's effortless. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is a lot of, there is, is a lot of kind of narrative thrust to this movie. And I, I completely agree with your point, Dan, about evil dead Two not really having any of that. And I, I, now I'm sort of questioning why I prefer Evil Dead 2 to this movie, but <laughs> but uh, just because there is a little bit more meat on on these bones. I think there's also the element of like the the colonizer and and just kind of yeah. how they're treating you know a, any other race but white in in this film. Um, and that was just an, and I don't know if that's is that self awareness or is that is that commentary uh, or is that just maybe being a little naive and using easy jokes. Um, mm. I wasn't a hundred percent sure because I think, you know, they make, there's not really a, aside from Bikita, there's not really a character who isn't treated like another, uh, who, who's, a, who's non-white. Um, you know, there's the, the, the group of black, uh, transporters in the beginning who, um, mm. you know, they just say Singaya and, and, uh, you know, it's a comic moment. You know, there's the comic rule of three where they cut off his hand, cut off his arm, and then splat, <laughs> cut off his head. Um, but it's kind of like they're just treated like a joke, and then they get their money and run off. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I kind of felt uneasy about that, I guess, watching it yeah. this time. Um, and maybe it is a comment on just sort of the historical racism of New Zealand. Um because there is a lot of it in that culture, uh, but I haven't seen that anywhere else in Peter Jackson's filmography, True. really, to to justify that. So, yeah, I think there's um, uh, an interesting quote from uh, the one of the writers, because technically the script is not just by Jackson; it's also by Stephen Sinclair and Fran Walsh. Uh, and the Fran Walsh quote is saying that. Um, it's essentially going back to like the meta argument about how, if at all, there is like a self-awareness here, if not about um, involving social commentary uh, about the genre itself. So they wrote, um, we were really interested in the central idea, which is the inversion of the classic zombie story where you've got people in a house being attacked from the outside. We really like the idea of inverting the story and having the zombies within the house, having to be looked after, fed, sedated, and ultimately rehabilitated. Also, it worked on another level in that it was all about what's going on in the suburbs behind the net curtains, keeping up appearances. So there's kind of like that kind of have your cake and eat it too yeah. aspect to it where it's like, I mean, I don't, that's, it's a really like, smart way to go about uh reviving which uh, even in the early 90s is already kind of a tired subgenre of horror and yet um there that th that's that's in the dna of the zombie movie right going back to romero's political mm -hmm. ambitions yeah. behind those films 
So I don't, I don't, maybe there's not necessarily enough evidence, like you said, especially looking in comparison to other Peter Jackson movies um, uh, for too much of like the uh, racial lens um, to be used on it. But there's, it's there. It, I feel like there's enough evidence to say that there's self-awareness here to the point where they are, um, they know they're doing something smart and they're executing it very well. What did you think, Dan? I mean, that's the one area here where it's like, from a self-awareness, social critique aspect of this movie, to me, uh, definitely with the special effects, the one I mentioned in the 80s, that's a great point, Brian. I did not think about that at all, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but where maybe I struggle with the film a bit is in trying to place it within the other sort of films that we've talked about, like Scream, A Cabin in the Woods, and stuff like that. Whereas a lot of those movies were, you know, trying to tie, place themselves within this broader horror spectrum of filmmaking and comedy and all those films and not here. It's like, especially from this quote, you're talking about this zombie story thing. That's why they lose me. I get the social criticism that they're going for in sort of upper middle class society and all these hierarchies and men over women, patriarchy, like that all adds up to me. It's what I don't get at all, and maybe I just don't have the reference points to really get it, but like in terms of this being a zombie movie, yeah, sure, I guess, but like where the zombie discourse was then at this point, this feels like a complete like other direction, not even related to the zombie thing that was happening especially with Day of the Dead and Return of the Living Dead. Maybe it's a little bit closer to that. But like going back to Dawn of the Dead or Night Living Dead, those films were very extraordinarily dark, super cynical, and had like a pretty clear political satire, not even satire, just political criticism uh, within, within that movie. I did not find that here. I found some really good general sort of like this is how society is and how it's screwed up, but pretty shallow and not really going all that deep. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Am I being unfair to Peter Jackson? Is there something deeper here going on? Not that I didn't you know, like that aspect of the film. It's just I have a hard time seeing that being there, this sort of deep political, social satire stuff yeah. as being anything more than kind of frivolous. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of just the coat hanger on which this coat is hung. Um, mm. It's it's very thin. It doesn't amount to much. And, yeah, it gives you some – in the necessity of a narrative, it, it gives you that. Um, and it gives you a little to think about. But I don't think it's really about that at all. This is about a bunch of um, – young filmmakers going out and just seeing what they can do and how, how gross they can get. And, (laughs) and I I think, you know, you mentioned the period aspect. I mean, how ambitious is that for, right. Like what a strange choice. Like why not, instead of just setting it in where things in a contemporary setting where things would be much easier to execute. Now they have to get all kinds of, you know, vintage cars and vintage clothing and, and, I, you know, a certain, from my understanding, a certain aspect of New Zealand is sort of behind the times in terms of, you know, yeah. architecture or technology, uh, but not that much. Um, <laughs> so they have to, you know, completely reshape their production for that period element, uh, which is just odd. Um, and 
kind of impressive. But again, I don't think I don't think anyone watches this to get uh, a <laughs> grand a grand commentary on anything. Um, yeah. And the psycho setup, you know, or Freudian setup, I think, you know, that's interesting. I guess it it leads to some. Each one of these aspects leads to some really gross, uh, gross uh, gore, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So the whole element of of Lionel and his mom really just builds up to that moment where Lionel gets consumed by the womb and then has to cut himself out. It's like it's <laughs> like they amazing. made that. it's like they wrote yeah. the story just so they could get that. Like how right. gross yeah. is that, you know? Um, <laughs> As opposed to as opposed to really having okay, well, I have these ideas, and so let's build a story around that. No, it's it's. I think the gore came first, and and everything else came afterward. I think there it, it, to give Jackson a little bit of credit. I I think that while he is trying to be, yeah, like uh, utilitarian, like I want this thing, so I know I need to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, just to make the film function he said um back in 92 also that he wanted to make specifically a splatter film that non-splatter films could go see and he thought that the humor diluted the gore to a point that is acceptable but still there for fans this is him still speaking on the other hand i'm not interested in making quote hardcore horror films like henry portrait serial killer or even texas chainsaw massacre although i enjoy both those films i like comedy too much and so ultimately like the joke is what matters the most to him. And just in that, he succeeds kind of disgustingly uh, to the point where uh, maybe that, that those other like subtext threads, um, if you really want to dig for them are there, but they're, that's not the point. And I think that's fine. (laughs) I think that there, like you said, there's enough gore to go around um, that, who cares who cares <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny too like uh there's a little sort of note and there's an imdb and some other websites that um this is almost rated essentially they would call oh, yeah. it 15 is the certificate in britain it'd be like rpg 13 sort of right uh below r uh because exactly what you said the the ratings people who are notoriously sort of uptight people right like MPA people work with the MPA and the the British uh, Film Board of Film Classification. Um, they saw it as you know, yeah. There's insane gore here, but it's all comedic. It's all within a comedic lens and frame. Uh, so it's like, why don't we just have people go out and, and see? And I think the actual excuse is that, that like young women would go see it and kind of be put off by it, which is why they <laughs> gave it an 18 instead of a 15. Um, I can't even like okay. How would this get rated today? It'd have to be an R, right? Maybe an NC seventeen. <laughs> I don't know. I think that there's 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 an argument to be made for both, but I think ultimately, uh, I don't know. Is there what's what is the dead alive equivalent of today? You mentioned earlier, Dan, right. that you know it's known as using the most blood, and I think that's true if you're talking about like actual physical like liquid um but uh there was a big deal um since we've been talking about the franchise in conjunction with dead alive it it only makes sense that uh the remake of evil dead from 2013 yeah right um they claim anyways that they they used way more blood but how much of that was cg i I don't know (laughs) that's probably the closest movie psycho gore man 
No. No. What? Okay. So this this came out uh, last year. It was one of my favorite movies. It's so funny. It's it's basically the same tone of of Dead Alive, and it's it's just insane. And they use you know just geysers of blood and a lot of practical effects, some special some computer special effects. But um, I think it's on. It's probably on Shutter. If you guys have Shutter. Um, mm-hmm. It is so funny and so over the top, and that's really the only movie that I can think of, aside from maybe um, Slither, that mm. really approaches these levels of comedy and horror. And none of the gore is meant to be scary, or in you know, there's the thinnest plot attached to it, and it's just let's see how gross and funny we can get with it. Um, I highly recommend you check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Added to my queue. Thank you, Brian. And what's interesting about this movie too is that it did not do well on release, mm-hmm. right? Bombed on release, had weird development stuff getting the distribution in the United States. When it does come out, people are like, "What?" Does like, I think it played in eleven theaters or something total. Made like two hundred thousand dollars in the United States. Then it has this big second life on video. I'm kind of wondering, like horror comedy in general. You know, it's a weird kind of subgenre of horror. Has it ever? been massive or huge there's got to be examples of movies that were like really big besides like scary movie right where it's not <laughs> Shaun just clear. Shaun of the dead Shaun yeah, of the dead yeah. there you go uh but did, it was a that did pretty too. well like, it has like, a big cachet but like financially i think it did decent it's like like a hundred million dollar movie in the united states we can think of a horror comedy i mean the closest thing i can think of is what we were talking about uh on the first episode of this batch of episodes happy death day and then also oh, yeah. i feel like freaky would have been even bigger okay if this COVID brings me happened. to another discussion that i have to have uh i was going through a list of horror comedy films that were out there and they list movies like happy death day they list like scream mm-hmm. uh i feel like there's a massive distinction between a movie like dead alive and something like happy death day of course of course well I mean, what is that it, distinction well i mean i think the the splatter subgenre it kind of takes care of that, but I don't know how I feel like that was also very much like a, a period uh, term from the eighties and early nineties. What do you think, Brian? I think it has to do with where you're directing your laughter. So scream, I would agree is a horror comedy because I'm constantly laughing throughout and I'm having fun while watching it, but Mm -hmm. I'm also jumping at the jump scares when, you know, a really well-placed jump scare or a really, you know, thrilling chase through the house or something. Um, I'm having moments of suspense, whereas this I'm laughing at it. Um, yeah. And I'm yeah. supposed to be laughing at it. Though. I'm, I'm laughing at the appropriate parts because that's where he wants me to laugh. Just like Wes Craven wants me to laugh and kind of be thrilled one, one second and laugh the next second, whether it's, you know, character interactions or um, the sense of relief I feel by a, by a false scare. Um, so I think they're both horror comedies in a way. It's just, it's just how I'm laughing at, at it or with it. Um, it makes a difference. Yeah, and I think I think you, uh, you that's a pretty important distinction. Um, with like I don't know, I'm trying to rack my head for these kinds of modern day horror comedies. I do think the Happy Death Day, while it probably is more like a 60 40 split yeah. um it's still like not a hundred percent like dead alive whereas like i don't know it, i hate to bring it up because i very much don't like either of the films but zombie land 
is oh yeah Definitely. outward sure. comedy but it's still trying to like do the horror story but there's still just like not enough there to to really make it successful in either category freaky is kind of a good example too recently okay where freaky it's kind of think of it's yeah. like happy death day but even more in the comedy it's not okay. really scary at all like it's just sort right. of like the you know vince vaughn acting like a teenage girl uh which is funny right it's inherently funny uh let's talk about evil dead 2 how do we how do we connect this i mean they, they seem very similar in sort of the energy the um focus on gore being uh at the front of what's happening uh the stories may be secondary i would argue it's way more secondary in evil dead 2 uh, and then the self-awareness element of him like redoing the first movie in a sense, the opening <laughs> part of Evil Dead 2. Um, yeah, how do you guys link these two together, you think? Yeah, I think there's a different, definite element of like cartoonishness, but even more so in Evil Dead 2, I would argue. Um, yeah. It, you know, there's the whole midsection where, where Ash is alone in the cabin and he's just kind of dealing with his his hand is very much like... A, a Tom and Jerry cartoon, really. Uh, you yeah. know, there's a mouse hole that's a half circle on the wall. I mean, uh, I've never had mice, but I can't imagine that that's a real thing. You know, this is, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a cartoon. Uh, and he's, you know, slamming things into his head and, and doing, I would say more Buster Keaton style physical yeah. humor yeah. than, than dead alive um, in this movie. And so I, I, I think it's that level of, leaning into the the horror horror comedy leaning into the comedy of it all yeah i think that the you know that that was honestly probably my uh introduction to horror comedy i think Mm -hmm. um maybe around the same time as scream but uh there's this kind of and it, you know, it, I remember it being basically jarring the first time I saw it, and then I—I I don't think I've watched it in like a decade. So it was jarring again when I rewatched it last week. That—that uh, that opening where it's just like, wait, so like, does he have memory loss, or is—are we just like straight up not caring? And then of course, you know, you, you read it, but I'm very, super curious at the time when it gets released. Like, you know, people can't Google things to find out that like, you know, Raimi didn't have the rights and ultimately became more of a reboot than a sequel. Like how, how is that, how is that received um, at the time? Do did like, I know that ultimately it wasn't necessarily uh, a hit, but it very much feels like that would, you know, shoot them in the foot. I don't, it's, it's amazing that they were able to um, eke out army of darkness and <laughs> for an even bigger budget. I don't know. What did you, What's your personal history with Evil Dead 2, Dan, especially in, in uh, conjunction with the rest of the movies from the franchise? Oh, I'd never seen it before. What? I've never seen it, yeah. Really? You've seen, you've seen <laughs> Evil Dead, though, right? Yeah, I've seen Evil Dead, but I've never seen Evil Dead 2 now. And I've never seen Army of Darkness. Um, what? Oh, interesting. Again, not my... It's just... I'm going to be honest, guys. I struggled through it. Uh, <laughs> I struggled getting through it. It's just not my... I don't like gore for the sake of gore is kind of one of my things. And like Dead Alive is definitely 100% my limit. Uh, but it kept me going because of the story elements and the, and the satire. There's something really clever going on. Evil Dead 2, it's very fun and it's uh, exciting. It's just, yeah, it um, it felt, I don't even know how to put it. It just, 
maybe it is that sort of splatter schlock like type of genre stuff that i just like society is a good example where i saw that once i'll never watch that movie again uh ever uh and i I had a very similar sort of feel to this original dead was more of a you know a horror film in and of itself that had some of these you know exaggerated elements whereas evil dead 2 is just a comedy with gore am i wrong in saying that i'm being unfair I think of it as so. If you it, back in I think 2009 when um, Drag Me to Hell came out, Sam Raimi yeah. called that film a a spooka blast movie, um, which is a <laughs> just a great term that I constantly think of now when I when I watch anything by Sam Raimi because he's he's going for I think in this movie just a roller coaster ride, yeah. and it's, it's a sensation machine, and it's a very well ratcheted. I mean. Dan, you mentioned um, how well put together Dead Alive is, and sure. I think I think personally, I think this film outdoes that in terms of just its construction. Every shot goes into the next one perfectly, and it's like it's a it, it seems like a yes, it's a splatter movie, and it seems like it could all just be random, but it's very well put together, uh, like yeah. clockwork almost. Um, and I think you know. Edgar Wright, for instance, his editing style is really bar- take, takes from this, where yeah. every shot leads into, you know, the, the camera is anticipating the next shot. And yeah. I love that about it. Uh, so I feel like, yes, it's not a movie where I feel profound emotions or <laughs> care much about the story really at all. But um, I kind of just sit back and watch great filmmaking uh, yeah. happen in front of me. Um and I, I prefer that. Whereas I feel, at least in comparison to Dead Alive, Dead Alive is a little bit messier and, I don't know, not as well-constructed, despite it being a well-constructed movie. Uh, it's just not as well-constructed as Evil Dead 2, I think. It definitely doesn't have that kind of um, uh, cohesiveness that Evil Dead 2 has, right. where it, it, it literally feels like, uh, like you said, a clockwork that made me, th- you, that you're used to that word, made me th- think of uh and it's a conversation dan and i've had several other episodes that idea of uh cinema as a thrill ride Mm -hmm. rather than as like necessarily a a thing where you get to wrestle with stuff so what i'm curious about though dan is because you know there there are a lot of connections between evil Dead 2 and dead alive Mm -hmm. where what was the what, what was it that like disgusted you in evil Dead 2 that didn't in dead alive uh it's the fact that um, in Dead Alive, it is a pretty basic story, but a story is being told. Yeah. Right? And there's so, a character. So it's more of a lack of story? Oh, yeah. That's 100% okay. what it is. Like the Evil Dead 2 scripts, I, I don't even, I mean, from a technical perspective, from a craftsmanship perspective, 100%. There's all these amazing things that are going on in this movie, some groundbreaking stuff. But I just think from like a story perspective, and I'm a story guy, right? That's yeah. like what I watch for in movies always is the story and the beats and the emotional narrative. There is no emotional narrative in Evil Dead 2. Like it is essentially, you know, it's it, it's a theme park ride, like you guys are saying, sensation machine. Uh, I think that to me that's where the difference is. We're on 
Dead, uh, dead alive. There was something I could hold on to at least, like a bar, a panic bar, or something, where it's like, <laughs> oh, this is where the story's going. I'm okay. Like this is where this is how we're gonna navigate the, these rapids. Whereas with Evil Dead, I felt like it's completely out of control. Like, and like maybe that's the appeal of it, uh, where it's just like boom, 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 boom. You have no idea where it's gonna go. Um, and it's interesting that like you brought up Brian the, the technical aspect of like the camera moving towards the next shot and it being you know, um, set up like clockwork, the thing that sort of stood out to me was sort of the nonsensical nature of what was happening. (laughs) In the sense that like, yeah, like technically they're moving from shot to shot, but like nothing's, you know, it's like a self-contained sort of narrative that they're working on. It's completely absurdist. So on the one hand, yeah, it's technically amazing. On the other hand, it's sort of like, well, where's, where's the thread of the story that you're telling. And I think for me, it's like, I'm so obsessed with that sort of stuff that like, that's where I struggled with the movie a little bit. I was just sort of like, yeah, this is crazy and gonzo and amazing, but just give me, give me that stupid Freudian subplot from, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like just give me just something a little bit to hold on to. But I honestly think that the appeal of evil dead and evil dead two, especially and probably arm of darkness from what I hear is that you don't need any of that. And then it's just sort of, it is what it is. It is fireworks. It's like fireworks of blood, essentially. Um, I I think if you can appreciate that, the ways that Sam Raimi is manipulating his audience and specifically like manipulating Bruce Campbell throughout the movie, um, then you kind of get, it's like you're, you're watching from Raimi's perspective and just, sort of appreciating how well he's manipulating you. And I, I think that kind of makes me think of Alfred Hitchcock and the way he just loved to manipulate yeah. an audience and, and the way that he, you know, turned, you know, if we we're talking about horror comedy uh, or kind of self-awareness or, or breaking taboos even with horror comedy and turning like the macabre into something that's funny. I mean, that yeah. all begins with Hitchcock with like, you know, the guys who are t- talking about the best way to murder somebody in shadow of a doubt or, or the trouble with Harry, it's, it's turning these macabre things into, into a kind of a sensation machine. They're they're yeah. as I said, um, you know, they're, it's thrilling, it's funny, and and he's manipulating us every step of the way. And in the end, it's ju- it's all just kind of a. It's like Raimi has told a practical joke, and the joke <laughs> and the joke is on Ash because in the end he's fucked. Um, and that's just yeah. kind of how each of them is. You know, the Evil Dead ends the same way. He's he survives, and then the Force, you know, comes and takes him, and then the movie's over. And <laughs> Army of Darkness is at least the like director's cut is is the same way, where he's just sort of screwed in the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's like uh, that's inherently where the self awareness comes from, because yeah. even though the the obviously the com- comedic element, but you know, in the script in terms of dialogue, there's not nearly as much of the you know wink wink nudge nudge that you would see. Um, in everything from Dead Alive to Return of the Living Dead. And yet, like, that's what makes it such a kind of fun thrill ride is because it's like you get to see the gears um, uh, getting kind of uh, becoming visible in front of you. That uh, that concept of, like, Bruce Campbell as Sam Raimi's ragdoll. Like, uh, uh, the thing that came to mind this time we are watching is, like, this feels like how Christopher McQuarrie's teach 
treating Tom Cruise in every subsequent Mission Impossible movie. Sure. Like there's this, 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 like, uh, it's, it's, and maybe that's, that's also like kind of disgusting, you know, <laughs> it, but in a way where it, it highlights the absurdism of the, the medium and of the industry, like it's almost a joke how Evil Dead 2 came to be, right? Like they literally just didn't have any money to make what they wanted because they had like a flop with a, a crime wave um, co-produced with and written with the Coen brothers mm-hmm. um, in 85. And so literally uh, it was this assistant director that, you know, happened to be working for Dino De Laurentiis and then Stephen King uh, heard an earshot that like <laughs> Raimi and uh, um, uh, who, who was the other, the, the main, um, uh, Scott Spiegel, who co-wrote the screenplay, like they they had wanted to do it, and just because De, L- De Laurentiis was made of money at the time, and Stephen King was a big fan of the first Evil Dead, uh, that's how they get it made. And so I can imagine like being in that kind of scenario as an up and coming director who had just like <laughs> played a a horrible prank on Hollywood by following up a promising debut with a big stinker. Uh, okay, I'm just going, I'm not even going to worry about story, about emotional beats. Like, I'm just <laughs> going to try to uh, put, you know, my my guy Bruce through the ringer and hope that that's enough. And lo- I mean, and it is for so many people that uh, I think that story that's being told is more behind the scenes than what's actually happening with Ash and like the, the character of Linda, who he, he like, I love, I love Bruce's uh his dialogue is almost just as good. His dialogue delivery is almost just as good as his, uh, his physical comedy because like when he's like holding the necklace and like saying Linda's name, it's just, it's, it's priceless. And uh, I think it's even more hilarious on like a meta narrative level that even after it seemed like the evil dead well had dried up 20 years later, Remy brings him back for a TV series. <laughs> I mean, he, he's a living cartoon and I think that just yeah. kind of fits with, you know, the, the tone of this movie. And I, I guess thinking about, you mentioned crime wave and you know, evil dead doesn't, the first one doesn't have much of a plot. Crime wave yeah. is a nothing plot, but it's filled with so many, funny gags um that are just the sort of looney tune slash three stooges type of aesthetic that he pulls into this and then he does sort of the same thing on on um army of darkness after this and dark man um and that has more of a plot i think And, and then after that he really kind of takes a step back from the aesthetics and he starts becoming a a storyteller more uh with his stuff in the mid to late 90s and um it, it he's just had a weird trajectory in his career to where oddly the most like sam raimi movie becomes you know spider-man or spider-man 2 where he's using all these aesthetic tricks and and telling a story um in in a way that both feel very relative to him um it's kind of kind of strange that that Spider-Man feels so much like a like a Sam Raimi movie based on mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. the progression of his career. Yeah, no, hundred um, percent. I mean, Peter Jackson also had a strange 
trajectory here, right? Like, yeah, goes from yeah. this stuff to like, I mean, like, you know, I two towers is probably the biggest movie in the world. It felt like it at the time, at least. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's still those connections there. Still, some of that, like you were saying, the close ups in the Hobbit and stuff felt very similar. I'm kind of interested, maybe to close this out here, like, um, just kind of knowing, especially Brian, like what makes you know both these films would be considered cult films, I would think. Um, how would you sort of define that here, and like what makes them cult films to you? So, I mean, there's at least at the time to what what was considered mainstream. Uh, there's you know just this alternativeness or technical all the technical innovations, the one-upmanship kind of that I mentioned before, or just really kind of being transgressive in terms of how much blood we can put on on screen yeah, yeah. and then really it's just kind of like how they're consumed um if these were huge movies that were earning you know tons of money at the box office i don't think they would be cult films but it's because of that rare time in you know movie consumption history where you could go and get a vhs or rent rent the movie and kind of talk about it with your friends or see it at a midnight show that that makes these cult movies and you know you mentioned the the ash uh ash versus evil dead tv series between that and the fact that I can go to Target right now and buy a stuffed Ash figure from the collection <laughs> collector section near the movie aisle, like I don't think Evil Dead is a cult thing anymore. I feel yeah. like it's way too popular. Whereas Dead Alive is still very much, you know, I I can't go get a Lionel action figure at, at Target, uh, um, and it's still and it's kind of hard to find. Like uh, I have a DVD that I bought in the early 2000s, and and that's how I watched it. I. I don't know. I couldn't actually find it streaming. I, I didn't look very hard, but I know I know there was a Blu-ray re- release, but it's out of print. And um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jackson has talked about, you know, Jackson has has talked about doing um, a restoration, but it's kind of it's kind of hard to find. Um, yeah, there's uh, three different really poor transfers on YouTube, and okay, uh, that's I think that's and but like each of these uploads have like hundreds of thousands of views yeah sure and it's insane that like it's just like out there for popular consumption uh and by you know the maker of the lord of the rings and the hobbit movies yeah and and yet it's still just kind of like this this gem that uh is is essentially a footnote for you know mainstream movie lovers and yet there's still like this rabid fan base and like uh, the legacy of dead alive and uh in many ways for that kind of very uh that very narrow subset of horror fans splatter fans like shutter subscribers it's yeah. it's there like uh, yeah. uh on you can you see it on letterbox you see it um on bloody disgusting and dread central so like i think that there's um the like i was kind of saying earlier there's this longevity to both of these films and for whatever reason because i don't know if it's the the spider-man aspect or just because like raimi is a lot more upfront about it i almost feel like jackson even talked about in the interview where he talks about restoring um dead alive for a new blu-ray release using the same uh techniques that he used for his world war one documentary i forget yeah. that um so like I think I think it I think a second life is on the horizon if Jackson ever pulls his gets his shit together and actually helps make this happen. <laughs> it's just that Evil Dead is so much more prevalent. 
Um, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think the, the ability for something to become cult has kind of, because our, you know, the culture is so fragmented as it is and everybody, you know, there are people who subscribe to Netflix and there are people who just use Amazon prime or HBO max. And that's just what they watch. Yeah. Uh, is on one of those subscription services. So something for something to become a cult object these days seems yeah. more difficult because part of the appeal is that it's not mainstream and there is no mainstream anymore. I don't think, um, mm-hmm. at least outside of you know superhero movies. Um, and so I feel like when Jackson eventually puts out this Blu-ray and it appears on Shutter again and it's accessible people are going to watch it like crazy and it's not going to feel culty anymore. It's not going to feel dangerous anymore. Uh, Whereas I think, I don't know that I I feel like there's an audience for, for dead alive. Whereas like meet the feebles and bad taste, which came before (laughs) this are never going to like, those will always feel like cult movies because (laughs) I can't see a huge audience watching meet the feebles and just enjoying it. Whereas I can see, today's horror audience really embracing this and in a way kind of horror has become very mainstream yeah uh, today and i think if you're part of the mainstream it's it's just it's not a cult it's not a cult thing um so midsummer is not a cult movie it's i mean that's a widely embraced movie critically and commercially plot wise Um, it's a cult movie but yeah i know what you're sure (laughs) (laughs) right exactly yeah um so yeah i i kind of dread the as much as I want to see a restored version of this, I sort of enjoyed. Yeah. I rewatched this last night on my, you know, shitty DVD that it doesn't have the best transfer, and I kind of enjoyed watching it like that. Um, yeah. That's no that is a cult to movie. It, yeah. 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 There's like this. It's almost like a dirty little secret. Right. Right. Um. um and we don't get enough, we don't get enough of those now because no, exactly. everything's available yeah. to everyone. Yeah. And but when this comes out on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, I guarantee you on the the Dreadit subreddit of horror fans, every day <laughs> someone's going to post, "Oh man, you guys dead alive before it's amazing!" Like some twenty-year-old, <laughs> right. it's the greatest. Yeah. Oh man, and the cult of Mystique will be will be gone. Yeah. Uh, Brian, thanks for being on this episode. It was fantastic. We really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah thanks for having me. And you are you're got new reviews coming out pretty much like almost every day, man. You're you're prolific. Thanks. Um, yeah, I try to do a couple a week, and then every probably two or three weeks do a larger essay. And then awesome. I also have a uh, a Patreon, which is just uh, Patreon slash Deep Focus Review. Very nice. cool. We'll nice. check that out. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Mm-hmm.